The National Archives podcast series, The King's Curse, presented by Philippa Gregory. Um, it's my huge pleasure and privilege to introduce this afternoon's writer, who's a historical novelist of immense success, popularity, and I think unique in bringing real scholarship to bear in a way that's accessible and real and human. Please welcome Philippa Gregory. today to talk about um, the book published tomorrow, King's Curse, which marks, I think, 12 years of your living with Henry VIII, which is... Longer than most of the wives are. Yes, yes. You talked about how the book changed a lot from the moment you started the research and the way you thought it was going to go to the book that's emerged today. Could you it, tell us a bit about Often that, that does happen with research and often that happens with a novel so you've got two processes going at once there's learning more and more and there's also how how the story is going to be curved how it's going to be told um, this was was probably the biggest the biggest change of any book that I've done I started off wasn't even going to be called the king's curse it's going to be called the last rose it was I think a rather lyrical account of Margaret Pohl a victim and it became the story of a vendetta between a ruling king and a family who was represented in this novel primarily by Margaret Pohl, definitely not a victim, a fighter, a survivor, a woman of incredible principle and determination and uh, ability. So uh, for a lot of her life, she's probably mostly active as a landlord and uh, she's the only woman in England to be a countess in her own right, not because of marriage, but because she wins her family title. She was, of course, a descendant of the House of Plantagenet, so uh, she has a sense of herself as being a member of the ruling family before the usurpation of the Tudors. And she's the founder of a, a family which include some extraordinary young men that she thinks, I believe in her heart from their birth, would have been better princes than anything the Tudors ever managed to produce. Um, if, apart from nothing else, just sheer numbers. I mean, she has four boys, and the Tudors never managed more than one at a time. Um, so, uh, a really extraordinary character. And, and as I came to respect her more and more and understand more of her achievement, I realized that the force against her was a king whose power increased to an extraordinary degree during the time that she was at court. So she first comes to Henry's court at the very beginning. She's Catherine of Aragon's best friend and chief lady-in-waiting. And so she's there for, as it were, the golden years, when Henry's in love with Catherine and they think they're going to have a child and he makes a regent of England when he goes abroad to fight. And then, bit by bit, that fairy tale marriage really, really unravels. And Margaret sees its unravelling, so she's absolutely close and intimate to that. Subsequently, she's uh, Princess Mary, Lady Mary's um, Lady Governess. So she's very, very close to the woman who becomes Mary the First and sees the way that Henry uses her as a pawn, turns against her, apparently actually hates her. And the main thing, I suppose, for me was that she's really party because she's a highly politicised woman. She really understands the working of power coming as she does from a ruling family. So she sees how Henry changes laws and changes his position, changes the religion, 
So he ultimately becomes the only power in England, <coughs> and how people who oppose him die for that. So it's, it became a darker, darker, darker book, more and more um, ominous in tone. I have to say, more and more scary to write. Um, and then at the very, very end of it, sorry, this is a long, this isn't conversation, this is a long <laughs> I'll just carry on, shall I? I'm having a nice time. At the very, very end of it, um, I realised that also that there is this legend which really grows up that the Tudors are cursed, that they bring into England this terrible disease of the sweat, and that they themselves carry a curse, which means that they cannot get a legitimate son. And that's such a powerful belief that goes through the folklore, which I kind of, you know, like, well, you'll know, because you, you yourselves do research. You kind of read something, uh, and it goes into your head, but you don't keep it at the forefront enough, and then something reminds you, and then you go, I knew this, but it's somehow realer to me than it's ever before. And then I discovered there's some new medical research on Henry VIII, and they think that he probably had a congenital uh, syndrome called Kells disease, and that is hereditary through maternal line. And that, all of a sudden, everything fell hugely into place with me with it, because I had written a curse, which was said, those of you who know the White Queen, was recited in the White Queen by Jaquetta, uh, Lady of the Rivers, the novel, and her daughter, Elizabeth Woodville, the White Queen. Then when, when the princes were taken from the tower, Elizabeth Woodville's sons, she, I've, I'm a generation now, it's Elizabeth Woodville and her daughter Elizabeth who becomes Princess of York. They cursed the murderer in my novel because what I wanted was a curse on the Tudors from these two women. So you've got this completely fictional witchy scene of this mother and daughter cursing whoever it was who murdered their sons and brothers. As it turns out, the curse that the Tudors may carry if they have uh, Kell syndrome comes through the maternal line, so it comes from Elizabeth York to Elizabeth Woodville to Lady of the Rivers. So I wrote this fictional scene of a curse, and then the science discovers that there is, in a sense, a curse which comes through the maternal line. And that's when you go, there's something about writing fiction which to me is infinitely superior to writing history, because sometimes you can say in fiction a truth which is not a fact. So that certainly the, the curse scene was fictional, but gosh, it expresses exactly what the facts may be. So there you go. <laughs> when it comes to the facts, yes. as we're in the midst of a lot of primary, lot of primary evidence, got a lot of facts. how easy has it been to find the women's stories and the women's voices in historical sources? Because they're often quite hard to find, aren't they? It's very, very difficult to find women's voices at all. Margaret Pohl, for instance, certainly must have written thousands of letters, mm. but I believe that a lot of them were, were treasonous or conspiratorial, and since the investigators, when they moved against her, found nothing, I imagine she burned everything. Mm. So it's not just a woman, it's a woman involved in the conspiracy, and you never find much on them, because they would be mad to leave anything lying around. Um, in terms of her voice, so you don't really have a voice. So what you end up doing is you do research, I do research where I'm often looking for where the husbands are who are often recorded. And you go, it's likely that the woman is with him then. 
the birth dates of the children <coughs> reflect very precisely that they were together nine months before, which is probably the only good thing about doing women's history. You've got that as a yes. <laughs> Um We've got some really funny things. You always have really funny things. I can tell you the colour of her dress when she goes to court and draws that out because we've got the wardrobe accounts. But I can't tell you what she thought. So that's where, in a sense, that's where there is great pleasure in writing fictional history, that I look at the events and what people did, and then I have to speculate, as every historian has to speculate, mm -hmm. as to why they did that and what they were feeling when it happened. It's those sort of accidental survivals of, of what seems like an incidental bit of paper at the time that can then lead you down a trail, can't it, to a the, 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 story? The first novel set in the Tudor period I ever wrote was The Other Berlin Girl, and that... I, I found a letter um, which Mary Berlin had written to Thomas Cromwell defending her marriage and writing that she was deeply in love with her husband, which is a fantastic document. Firstly, that it should survive at all, that she should have written, and of course it survives because he's a great record keeper. God bless him. You know, <laughs> here we are. Let's have a word for everyone who keeps a record. Doesn't matter if they murder people, if they keep a record. <laughs> That's all we really want. Um, and that, you know, that the letter that he kept from her should be one where she's declaring a passionate attachment to her husband about 200 years before historians think people marry for love generally. So you go, this is, this is, this is real. This is so counter to what we expect. Yes, and again, it's what you instinctively feel, but you couldn't quite prove. Absolutely. And when you do, that's that. Ah, yes, it's a complete delight. So when you're researching and you're finding these, bags, how disciplined are you about getting sidetracked or not trying to cram too much historical information into your narratives? Is that the, the, the more I write, the more uh, gracious I try to become about research. So just because I know something doesn't mean to say all of you are damn well going to get it. You know, <laughs> I spent six months proving this fact. You're certainly going to get three pages from me. You know, like it's, that's part of the discipline of writing a novel, that it can't be a thinly disguised history lesson. It's not. That's not what I want to do. That's, I have no interest, really, in teaching people history just for teaching people history. What I want to write is a really great novel that people will read and be completely absorbed by, drawn into that world, and they will inevitably then come out of it knowing more about history than they did before. But that's not, it's not my job. I'm not a history teacher. You know, I'm a novelist is my sort of day job. And then my um, other job is history research. It's a very subtle introduction of people to history almost by stealth, isn't it? Without realizing that you're reading a lot about Tudor life and court and manners and and, and some people don't ever really realize it. You know, no. they read it as if it was a novel. It's set in a period which they're not familiar with, but so would a novel set in the 60s, mm. perhaps. They read it on a sun lounger. And, you know, they sometimes love the characters as if it was Bridget Jones. You know, yes, there's in a yes. sense no obstacle to their understanding. And that's that's what I think a good historical novel is. I don't want people to go like, aha, this is what went on 500 years ago. I want them to go, I just get this person. I understand what she's doing. And every now and then you have to say, please, in a way, you have to say, please bear in mind, leaving the country is not an option. You know, please bear in mind that standing up to so, someone is not possible. Please bear in mind that your husband owns absolutely everything and has a legal right to beat you as long as he uses a stick no longer, no fatter than his thumb. 
it, that's, I mean, in a sense, to convey that to the modern audience, I think, is the most exciting thing to do, that these are people very like us in a society very unlike ours. So when you wrote uh, Women of the Cousins War, which is the historical download, if you like, of all that, the, the, the factual material, was that, did that come from the need to, 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 <laughs> it was, to well, share all the research, or from the audience saying, you know, give, give us the framework that these, these characters sit in? There was three needs going on there. There was the fact I did have all of this material, and it was original. So there's no biography, there's no published biography on um, Jakarta. Uh, Elizabeth Woodville's mother. I wrote a novel about her, Lady of the Rivers, but there's no published material at all. And that just seems extraordinary to me because she is, after all, incredibly important and she's at these extraordinary events and very, very interesting woman. I mean, I open the novel and she's at the trial of Joan of Arc and she ends the novel as the mother of Queen of England. That's a life. You know, why historians haven't written it as a history, I don't know. So when people, so my need was really, I wanted to tell a story. Um, and the readers, one of the things everybody almost always asks is they say, what's fiction and what's fact? And depending on my mood, I say 49% exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or I say, um, as is true, absolutely a different mixture in different scenes. Or if I'm feeling very contrary, I say, I have just spent two years of my life weaving this together so exquisitely that I don't want you to ask that. I don't want you to even think that. You don't think we're going to talk about it, do you? That's, like, that's, that's the secret of the business. That's the craft. Um, and then also, I do think there is a sort of a need which I, I feel that I couldn't say was ever true. But like, I think that Jaquetta would like a biography about her. I think, I think if you live a life at the centre of events, and you are powerful and influential, you should be recorded. It's, it seems to me sort of wrong that we should forget these people, and really wrong that we should forget women. You know, any woman struggling with power today, any woman struggling with people's view of women in power today, would find their lives easier if they realised that this is a tradition which goes back centuries, and that our foremothers have achieved beat the system, and we can too. So I, I feel very passionately about the history of women, and uh, it happens that most of the time I write fiction <coughs> about women, and so when I came to write a uh, history, of, it's a book of history essays, and uh, my, my essay in it is on Jaquetta, and two other historians, David Baldwin and Michael Hicks, both men, it's okay by me, <laughs> they wrote their, their essays on the characters of their biographers, Elizabeth Woodville and Margaret Beaufort, and Tudor's mother. Is there one particular Tudor Plantagenet woman who you feel you, I mean, we've talked about Jaquetta, but who you feel is, is your, your favourite, if you like, your, your clearest role model, the most fascinating character, or is it whoever you're writing about at the It's time? almost always, you always like, you know, you always like the newest one yeah. best because they're the ones you've just worked on. Funnily enough, I mean, I think Anne Neville is terribly interesting because she's, I don't, I don't really pluck her from obscurity. There's a biography and she's in a Shakespearean play. Yes. However, her part in Richard III is so demented that Shakespeare actually says, breaks off, well, Richard does it, but Shakespeare says to the audience, 
was ever a woman in such a humour wooed? Was ever a woman in such a humour one? And the resounding reply from the audience should be no. Why do you suggest that this would happen? It clearly couldn't happen. And Shakespeare suggests that it happened because it's part of the demonising of Richard III, which is part of his job as a Tudor publicist, playwright, and spin doctor. Um, and one of the sacrifices in that play is the character of Anne Neville, who apparently meets the murderer of her husband, the murderer of her father-in-law, tells him that she hates him, and in the next scene is married to him. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> but what we do know, interestingly enough, is that there is a gap in, in, her, in the record on her where she seems to have run away from her brother-in-law's house, George Duke of Clarence's house, and then the next time we see her, she's married to Richard, um, who's then just a duke, probably the only man in England who could have protected her mm. from the predatory intentions of her brother-in-law. And that looks to me not like a woman going totally bonkers and marrying a murderer. It looks to me very much like a woman going, who in England can I marry so that he's on my side so I can preserve my fortune? This is the only person powerful enough, the, the king's other brother. Which, now I come to think about it, hell of a title for a book. <laughs> <laughs> Anything with other in it has always done very well for me. So uh, she's really interesting. And then, of course, I love Elizabeth Woodville. Who could not love Elizabeth Woodville? Total Cinderella story. Wonderful, wonderful, amazing story. I would not dare to write the story of an English country woman who stands by the road one day when the king rides by and six weeks later they're married for love. I wouldn't write that. <laughs> like, where would my reputation <laughs> It just happened. I had to write it. It's what happened. Mm -hmm. Do you think women today and readers today can, can learn from the, their Elizabethan role models who, who've got such a steep life in terms of status and recognition? Absolutely. And, and I know that people do because they write to me and say, having read that, I felt really empowered to do that. There's a, a lovely letter I got from a young woman who... Um, was married not very long at all. She was married two years and her husband decided to leave her. And she was reading my novel, The Constant Princess. Um, and, was it, no, she was reading The Other Berlin Girl and she was thinking about Catherine of Aragon. And The Other Berlin Girl really shows the abandonment of Catherine of Aragon by Henry. And uh, she, he came, I sound indignant. I feel indignant about this. <laughs> This, this young man who I don't know at all, except there's a letter from his wife, he came round with his friends to pick up his stuff, and she had to hold open the door while they walked out her wedding gifts. Mm -hmm. And she said, I stood there, and I thought of Catherine, and I didn't cry. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, good for you. That's stiff upper lip goes back on. Well, stiff upper lip, doesn't it? Yes. Stiff upper lip is what... Don't what, give him the pleasure. No, but it's, it's the, the, the skills of endurance, which mm -hmm. women do have throughout history, and which we should really celebrate. Um, when you're writing Tudor life, how, how immersed in, in sort of habits and daily routines and things like the clothes they had to get into every day, do, do you become, do you have to sort of think yourself into a farming girl <laughs> to, to, to write those scenes? Or you, well, yes. I don't dress up or anything. No, no, I don't. <laughs> Some people do. Some people are indeed. Living <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. And, you know, of course, there's, there are bizarre opportunities to do that, you know, that there are, um, like, medieval fairs oh, yes, by writers. And, yeah. yeah. Um, 
actually the reconstruction thing I really understand the the party in Vegas where a, a number of historical fiction writers went as Anne Boleyn to Vegas that's that's <laughs> that's a step too far for me but um sure not the most obvious venue either. <laughs> but you know you can see it's half timber position must have been fun in a way anyway uh, what I do do is I read tons and tons I go to costume museums um, actually having a book dramatised and seeing the, the clothes and seeing the recreated the interiors recreated and being able to walk through them although they're a film set or a television set it's extraordinary mm -hmm. how walking or or just being surrounded by lots of people in costume, or being somewhere like Bruges, and walking through the streets which are medieval, with people dressed in medieval clothes, it's very, very haunting. And it does give you a very strong impression of what it would be like. And what's even, I mean, what's really wonderful is, especially in this country, there's so much which is still present and available. And even if it's just the landscape. I mean, riding, if you, if you ride a horse, I live in Yorkshire, if you, if I ride up my horse over the moors, um, I'll be seeing much that anybody would be seeing 600 years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, occasional plane going by, but a lot of the time, very low. As it was. Yes. Mm -hmm. I, I guess with, with living history and the experiment, you, you do have those sort of sudden moments of realisation. Lucy Worsley's talking about how Tudor's string beds. You can't actually lie very comfortably, which is why in paintings they always look as if they're sitting up somehow. It's the only way you could cope with that. And, uh, there, there's a lovely bed in the V&A which, mm -hmm. which they've made up, and then there's a sort of cross-section through it so you can see that the, you know, the rope and the straw and the bedding, and then, you know, if you're wealthy, the beautiful linen that goes on top of it all. And then, of course, somebody comes in and every night and shoves a, a, a sword through it just to make sure that nobody's lying in there to assassinate you. So when, when your, your novels have been dramatised and, and you see them literally brought to life, is what, what, what are the differences between seeing your... And how much involvement do you have in putting your words into mouths rather than onto mm. the page? It's, uh, it varies with every project. Mm. And um, the rule of thumb, which I think is true, is the more money, the less anybody cares what the writer thinks. Because <laughs> you become a big Hollywood project. You are one of hundreds of people who are desperate that it shall be successful. And actually, desperation is not a good way to create a work of art. <coughs> Um, so it's very tense, very, very tense. And um, I was at um, Penshurst when we were filming Gerda Berlinger at Penshurst, and Scarlett Johansson was there, and Natalie Portman was there, and so was Eric Banner, and everyone was dressed up and ready to go. And there were, I would think, about 200 people, all fully dressed, just waiting around mm -hmm. till this scene was, was finished. So they're standing there, and it's like, it's like, the whole project is eating money. You could almost see the dollars see the rolling around. around. <laughs> and certainly the director could see them rolling around. You know, like it's, it's incredibly fraught. And there's so many people, and there's the canteen out the back, and there's the mastiffs. You know, we have mastiffs waiting to go. We have horses waiting to go. We have the mastiff handlers and the grooms. You know, it's just huge. And I said, can we just do that again? Because that line wasn't quite right. And you could see them go, no! <laughs> <laughs> Who's that? 
the author. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> and they're very courteously didn't yeah. But you know, any delay, you know, once it's a big project, it's just got to roll. You, 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 you do get carried on with it. Um, however, on say the BBC's The White Queen, um, I was executive producer on that, so I could say stop. We need to do that again. But even that, there's occasions, there's lines in that which are not mine and which I wish hadn't been written. And I have the memo in which I say, do not, on any account, and there it is. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, very, very irritating and very painful. But at the same time, I have to say, people do not come in the night and steal my novel and go off and make a film out of it. <laughs> they negotiate with me. I say, are you going to do this with it? They say, they always say, it's going to be the most fantastic film ever made. <laughs> and your words are going to be treated with such respect. And often we have a lunch which involves a great deal of champagne, and sometimes they tell me that I'm the greatest writer since Jane Austen. <laughs> by the end of the lunch, I agree with them. <laughs> Signs the contract, and then they pay me. You know, like it isn't, it isn't a kidnap. It's a business deal, and then they do what they want to do, and that's what you're selling. You know, so in a way, it would be ridiculous for me to sit here and complain mm. because I know what that business is like now, and it's like that. And you've got that memo. So when someone comes to write the thesis, well, they don't I've know. got the memo, but for me, I've got the book. Yes. If you want yes. to know what I yes. think of Henry VIII, this is the book where I'd say it. You know, if you want to know what, how many, maybe a hundred Hollywood executives think of Anne Boleyn, that's the film. You know, yes. plus yes. everyone else yes. who was consulted. <laughs> You know the director's wife. You know everybody has a, has a say. Um, so uh, you know I'm a novelist. That's my uh, you know I'm a novelist and a historian. That's my prof those are my professions. I'm not a scriptwriter, and I wouldn't do the process. It's incredibly. I mean, everyone I know who w works in both worlds absolutely celebrates the fact that when you're writing a novel, you're in your study, you're on your own. Every now and then, if they're feeling very brave, somebody will ring me up, like an editor and agent, and say, how's it going? Any chance of it being delivered on time? <laughs> and um, by and large, I say, yes, it's always delivered on time, and I don't expect much input from anyone else at all, and I can refuse it if I don't want it. You know, if they say, we think it might be better done like this, you can just say no. But in films, you have to collaborate. It's a collaborative yes. business. I haven't put all about how long you've been living with Henry VIII, and, and he keeps coming back and almost cursing you, haunting <laughs> <laughs> us now. Yes. You use words like psychosis and, and serial killer. Do you feel the more time you've spent um, amongst his circle and how ruthless he was, we want to sort of shock the historical establishment into thinking in, in those modern terms? Is it, is it a shock tactic, or is it just no. genuinely murder on murder? You can't help concluding that. I. I think, it, the okay, one difficulty is, is that we have such a jolly image of Henry VIII, yeah. and if you go on the BBC website uh, for primary schools, it says, why is Henry VIII famous? Because he had six wives. So it's kind of, I mean, he is extraordinarily eccentric, and it just looks like that's kind of fun. When you realise, when you think that he deliberately killed two of the wives, neglected to her death two others and the fifth um, one he, one got away with a divorce but there was a charge sheet of witchcraft and um, 
treason, which would have led to her death. So Anne of Cleves is far luckier than the record suggests. Mm. Uh, if you if you if you examine the treason charges that she would have faced if she hadn't agreed to a divorce, um, and then the last one, Catherine Parr, he almost certainly would have um, tried, I believe, um, but for the fact that he died before he could go to trial. So, the, you know, this is abuse. This is extraordinary abuse of women. Um, and I know that medieval husbands are not notorious for their consideration and care for women. And I do try and be really careful about not going here modern standards and putting it on the past because that's obviously yeah. ahistorical. But actually, if you look at the death of Wolsey and the death of Moore and the death of Cromwell and the, then the deaths on the Pilgrimage of Grace, which was hundreds of people to whom he had granted a signed royal pardon and then went back, mm -hmm. declared martial law and prosecuted them for treason, and killed them. And the thing they say then is that the ironmongers of Carlisle ran out of chains, because when they hanged people on trees, they wrapped them in chains so that they were preserved, mm -hmm. so everyone could see that they were dead, and so the weight dropped the body down. And they ran out of iron in the northeast of England, because so many people were executed. Mm -hmm. This is, this is it's a crime against humanity, if you wanted to look at modern standards. Mm -hmm. But it was, in any case, the breaking of his oath. He promised these people a full pardon, and he went straight back in and got Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk, to do the dirty work of, of murdering subjects whose only offence had been to demand the restoration of the Catholic Church and the return of the nobility to the King's Council. It's a definitely a move towards tyranny, and people at the time said he was a tyrant. So this isn't a historical. People at the time said he has become hopelessly corrupted mm -hmm. and moved towards tyranny. People at the time said he was a madman, and people at the time said he was a murderer of an extraordinary proportion. One of the French ambassadors says, you know, everyone is in complete bewilderment at this king as he kills his own family. You know, mm -hmm. they thought he mm -hmm. would kill Princess Mary. They were afraid that he would charge her with treason and, and behead her. You know, if, if you, of course, with modern science, we look at whether he might have been ill. I think it's perfectly reasonable with modern psychology to say what, what sort of mental state is this? And his, towards the, his last years, I believe he's certainly paranoid, and I think he might be a psychopath. Yeah. But the difficulty is, is like, there are, of course, psychopath tests. And um, so, there's a, so they are themselves a bit woolly, you know, like you shouldn't really diagnose mental, mental illness, especially in yourself with a test. <laughs> you know, like a self-administered test is not likely to be absolutely solid scientifically. If you then are doing the test pretending that you, though a modern woman in 2014, are in fact Henry VIII, it is like this. It, you know, it's not solid science. But, uh, and then it, you have the difficulty that it, any medieval man is a bit psychopathic, if you can be a little bit psychopathic, because the power that they had was so extraordinary. The tendency to violence was so habitual. The society is so tolerant of these kind of, you know, tyrannical behavior that you've got to read past that. So it, again, it's the, it's the problem, it's the great joy of history all the time, which is if I look at this period, what must I not bring from mine, and what must I bring from mine? How do I interrogate the document except with the brain I have, which is that of a modern woman?
particularly doing television well. Um, <laughs> what are you working on now? Um, are you still with the Tudors? I'm still with the Tudors. Yes. I'm, I'm, I have been troubled by Catherine Parr for some mm. time. Um, I just couldn't start with her, and I've just been reading recently. She's the first published woman writer in the English language, and Queen of England, and Henry Sarswine. That's just so extraordinary. Um, so I've been reading her material, and I've been thinking about her life, which is, again, completely extraordinary. And in a way, because you think about Henry, when you think about the wives, you never think about the wives. What, it, it divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. And it's as if that's all they do. Mm. You know, of course, she had two husbands before Henry, and she has one after. Um, the, the one after is an insanely indiscreet marriage for love, and she's probably having sex with him uh, before Henry's death. It's unbelievably dangerous. Um, extraordinary story. Um, so I'm working on Catherine Parr, and I think there will be a novel about Catherine Parr. But I'm at the stage, I'm so early on, that I'm at the stage which is very exciting and very enjoyable, but also very troubling. So I kind of am feeling her and thinking about her. And when I've got a sense of who she really is, when I feel that I can imagine her, as well as just reading about her, then uh, I'll start to be getting into writing. Mm -hmm. What's your writing routine? Are you very disciplined, or do you have to be in a special... No, no, I, I, I write at such speed, and I, in a sense, have to write at such speed if I'm going to produce... I, at the moment, I do a book a year, a novel a year, and the publishers really love that, and God knows the readers really love that. And I do get, like, requests, could you get them out quicker, and the answer is really no. <laughs> no, I can't. Um, so uh, I write, I carry a laptop with me wherever I go, I've got one with me now, I'm on book tour and I'll be writing. Um, I write anywhere and everywhere. The internet is a phenomenal resource, so I can research practically anywhere as long as I've got a signal. Um, and I don't write any particular pattern. When I, was, um, when I was younger and my children were at home, I used to write in school hours, very strictly, because those were the only hours I have. But now I have any hours of the day I really want to write in. And I find, um, I find that I don't write more than four hours ever in a day. Because if I do, so the writing is a real intense imagining, and of course writing the words, but it's the imagining that's so powerful. If I do more than four hours a day of that, I start dreaming. I go to bed and I dream in character. And it's my personal belief that if I dream in character, my brain has not quite got where we are. So like it spent four hours of say, I don't know, eight, 10, 12 hour a day of um, imagining itself at the Tudor court. It's not quite connected enough with reality. And I think that's the way you go a little bit mad. <laughs> so I really want, I really do think it's important. Every, it, I do think it's important to, to keep a, a bit of a separation from my imaginative life. And one of the ways of doing that is keeping the writing hours down to manageable people. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And um, some of your books have been set in Italy, you must have been immersed in mm. Italian places. You probably do you spend much time researching I had, there? Or I had a, a completely yeah. wonderful time. Last year I went to the Venice Carnival mm -hmm. and um, 
kind of surprisingly, went on my own and took tickets to Masked Balls, went completely dressed up as Anne Boleyn, mad as you like, totally anonymous. Um, and it was just, to, I mean, to walk through Venice in costume, and it was February, so it wasn't like hot or anything, it was like misty and wet, and the cobbles were shining, and the river was slapping, and the gondolas were bobbing, and you just go like, this is the life. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you can come home to a place which is centrally heated and get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, would you silly question, but do, do you ever wish you could have been born earlier? Do, do you ever feel that you spend so much time in, in mm. that headspace that that's I, a that life you would have I love I love the historical period. Mm. But um, when people say to me, would you like to be a time traveller? Would you like to have been born then? If you're going to be born a woman, you should never ever, this is a word of advice, if you ever get the offer, <laughs> do not be born a woman any time before 1854, which is the Married Woman's Property Act. If you get born before then and you're a woman, then the minute you marry, everything you own, everything, and you'll only own it because your father gave it to you, Everything your father gave to you will go automatically to your husband. And however terrible he is, if you leave him, he will keep everything and he will keep your children. And there is no way of appealing against that. That's the rule. So don't be born before 1854. <laughs> Personally, I would advise you not to be born before about 1918, 1919, because you need a political presence. It's not enough to be the power behind the throne. Because if you are the power behind the throne, the throne may pass a law which says that you're treasonous or illegal or that it would be better if you were dead. So you have to have political power. And the only way that any effective political power is the vote. I really can't be doing with this slide, you can influence men. I mean, really. <laughs> so don't do that. Um, and then the last thing I would say is if you want to be born a woman, don't be born much before 1960. I mean, of course, bear in mind childbirth without anaesthesia. Bear that in mind really carefully. Uh, you will regret it if you don't think that through. But if I were you, I wouldn't be born any time before 1960 because you have to have reliable contraception if you are going to make a decent life for yourself at all. Do something other than... Do something other than die in childbirth. Yes. Um, which you're almost certain to do if you can't control your, your fertility. Um, so that would be my advice, which fundamentally really comes down to don't be a woman any time except a modern woman, because it's awful. Uh, never, never, ever let anybody persuade you to be a poor person. It's no fun at any time. Don't be a poor now if you could possibly avoid it. Um, and um, be a rich man any time. <laughs> just fabulous. Uh, I mean, it's patriarchy. It's just absolutely great. You know, be a knight, gallop round, lovely horse, people serving you, great food, wenches. You know, no, not a problem. You'll die early and you'll die of wounds, perhaps. But you'll die quick. And actually, your friends will put a sword through your heart if they were good friends. They wouldn't do that for you, and that's okay. Um, you know, come a bit more modern. You know, just be a hero, be a rich man, anytime. Good advice. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is the nature of patriarchy. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Slightly different, Jack. Um, which writers have had the most influence on you and your writing style? Um, I suppose the writers that I owe the greatest debt to are the historians, and mm. I fell in love with history as a result of uh, learning history at the University of Sussex. 
and I read people like um, E.P. Thompson and George Roulet and Hobsbawm, the left-wing radical mm. historians. Um, a bit later, Sheila Rowbotham for women's history. and, and So that, that sort of um, cohort of historians changed my life, I mean, just completely. Um, and I'm forever grateful for, um, I would do history A-level, people who are thinking about people getting results tomorrow. I got an E, history <laughs> A-level, an E. <laughs> I got, oh, good. <laughs> to what class did you get? Uh, A's in English and geography with an E in history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, got, I got a B in English because what do I know about English literature? <laughs> and I got an E in geography and an E in history. And I couldn't get into university <laughs> even then. <laughs> even then, when they would take almost anybody if they were <laughs> nicely mannered. Um, so I went off to do journalism college. And I went to be a journalist. And it was only after I'd been a journalist for about three years that I went, I really can't do another Waterloo Villain District Chrysanthemum show. I, I, I really can't. I'm only 21. I'm too young to die of boredom. Exactly, exactly. Um, and actually, the same people won every year. So it was really deeply boring. So I went to, to the, uni the nearest university, which happened to be Sussex, which in those days would take people from a, from a work background without very good A-levels because they thought they had a commitment to educate the labouring poor, which I passed myself off as very successfully. <laughs> um, went to do English literature, fell in love with history. Changed my life. So what was the switching point between history, journalism, history, and then well, history? I know the boundaries are When I look back, actually a lot of the things that I liked about journalism, that I go on loving about journalism, mm. I do a bit of journalism now and then, it is the inquiring, is the here's a document, what does it mean? Here's somebody saying something, how does that fit into the, the account that you have? So I always loved investigative journalism, so mm -hmm. that was always what I was wanting to do in between the chrysanthemum shows, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, the switch for me um, at university was, uh, at Sussex in those days you had to do two other um, art subjects. So I had to do philosophy, which I have to say passed over my head really rapidly. I, I got <laughs> almost none of it. Um, and then you had to do a course in something else and I chose to do history. Only because my best friend said, let's do history. I went, oh, okay. <laughs> Since we have to. Accidental points, Absolutely. but the points change Absolutely. and you find yourself Absolutely. something you really love. Yeah, total change of life. One last question before we open the uh, the floor to questions. You founded a charity, Gardens yes. for Gambia. Yes. And that's about primary school education in Gambia. I was, it, yes, I was in the Gambia doing research for a novel which I wrote called Respectable Trade, which is mm. about slavery, 18th century slavery. And I wanted to go to a slaving country, and the Gambia was a country where there was um, slavery. And so uh, I went there, and as I was there, I thought I would write a piece of journalism on whether it's possible to, tr to be an ethical tourist. Can you go and actually improve the country that you've gone to, or is your very presence naturally corrupting? Um, and so because I was interested in that, I went to see a project which is funded by a tourist company, which was a school where they were, they'd built a kitchen for the school. And when I say it's a school, imagine if you will, a sort of shed, like you would have in the bottom of your garden and say, God, we've got to get rid of that. 
<laughs> let's build a proper shed. So breeze block walls and a corrugated iron roof um, divided into with a sort of stud wall and the children sit on the earth floor and the teacher stands in front of the blank wall and recites the lesson to them from memory. There's no blackboard, there's no pens, there's no paper. The children are required to remember the lesson and recite it back to them. And outside there's a big, big, big plastic drum of water. And when you go there first thing in the morning, you see the children walking up the road from the village with their day's water balanced on their heads and they're like four. And they're like that with their, their bucket of water. Beside that is a sack of um, peanuts in the shell, and that's what the kids are going to eat for lunch, unless their parents are rich enough to send them with food. And of the school of 600 children, about 400 are never rich enough. Mm. So the vast majority of children will eat in the middle of the day some peanuts and drink some water, which they themselves have bought in. And the school headmaster said, uh, what we want to do is to drill a well in what he called the school garden, which if you looked out at it, you would go, this is fundamentally a small desert, you know, mm -hmm. just dust, just dust, to the dusty road, and on the other hand, some dusty trees. He says, we want to drill a well here, and then we'll water, and then we'll teach the children sustainable agriculture, and they can eat the food that they grow, <coughs> and if we make a surplus of food, we can sell it, and we'll buy books and stationery and blackboards and benches and things for the school. Would you make a contribution to this? And I said, what sort of contribution? And he said, anything. And I said, what, does, what would the well cost? Thinking we would be talking thousands. He said, 400 pounds. And this is me on a holiday with my family to the Gambia. I said, I'll give you a check. So I wrote him a check. And this is such a long time ago. This is about 30 years ago. So I wrote him a check. And I said to him, let me know how it goes. And I came back to England and I thought, if I don't hear from him, then I have just lost 400 pounds, which is not insubstantial to me. If, on the other hand, I have heard from him, I've just done the most amazing thing, and I'm going to go to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> which was of some concern to me, because my personal life at the time was quite checkered. And I thought, this is like a bargain. And um, because it's such a long time ago, he didn't email me or anything, we didn't have that. Then he sent me a fax to my fax machine, and it said, thank you very much for the money. We've dug the well, it's on stream, the children are drinking the water, they're b digging the garden. Uh, it's looking very, very successful. We're fencing the garden, <coughs> the parents are involved. This is all working all right. The school next door saw our well and said, will you give them one? <laughs> and I went, you know, I think I will. I really think I will. I think this is a fabulous little project. And so I wrote a novel, uh, wrote an article for a magazine and people sent me some money and I talk about it wherever I go and people give me money. And I send money myself now for two wells a month, uh, absolutely every, uh, uh, I don't want to lie to you. Sarah, do we send money for two wells a month or two wells a quarter? We do about eight wells a quarter. Eight wells a quarter? Bloody hell, I'm <laughs> <laughs> I'm certainly going to have them. There's no doubt that I'm going to have them. And um, we've done um, nearly 200 wells now. How many? 244. 244. And there's only 250 <coughs> primary schools in the whole country. So when I've done the whole country <laughs> for primary schools, that's when I'm going to stop. 
and I thought it would be years, but actually we've got a bit of room. Yeah, we're very nearly there. And if you would like to contribute to the remaining, quick before that, all gone. Remaining Yes, please do. Give me up. So yeah, that's my charity, and I'm very, very, very proud of it. It's a lovely, lovely little thing. It's just so easy. And the well digger is a guy with a bucket and a spade. And I gave him a hard hat, and he just was so proud of himself. <laughs> he goes down there, he's got this hard hat. He's digging in sand, you know, it's not a real problem with <laughs> rocks, but that, it's like spaces, it's huge spaces. And, um, you know, they just dig it, they just put a little wall around it so children don't fall into it. And then they have a rope on the end of the bucket and just pull it up. It's, it's a lovely, lovely little, lovely little charity. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. This talk was recorded on the 13th of August 2014 at the National Archives, Q. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.